welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint. <laughs> I am Tony. Welcome back. <laughs> Just trying to yeah, fla- no, it's good. flare it's it good. up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's good. You're really getting into it. Glad to be here. Yes. Um, today, I'd like to talk about myth yeah. and story in scripture and matters of faith. What do you mean? There are no myths. Okay, so what do we mean by myth? Yeah, I mean... There's a popular show called Mythbusters. Yeah. Where, you know, what they mean by myth is there's this saying going around. Something people believe that's actually not true. Right. That's what a myth is. Like Snopes.com. Yes. Bust your myths. But that's not how I'm using it. No, okay. It means more... And some nerdy uh, literary analyst would quibble between all these terms, but folklore, legend... uh fantasy fairy tale myth story i think of myth as or or then you can latch on like historical myth or historical legend and the categories can get wonky but i think what i mean is um a tried and true story that usually contains some kind of divine figure or heroic element mm-hmm. meant at capturing a objectively true or culturally important um like an ethos like a like like aesop's fables are trying to convey some moral truth because you just rattled off a bunch like fairy tale fantasy yeah none of those scream to me they happened historically they i think oh made up story how about legend legend it might have something happened yeah we don't know what Mm -hmm. legend is something that you know some sailor tells in a part in a bar about what happened on the seas and the story grows over years. Yeah. So just on my brief, maybe we will get into that nerdy literary analyst thing, but uh, the, the key difference I saw between the definition of myth and legend is legend is strictly uh, human events. uh, Okay. And a myth would like usually include a supernatural element. Okay. A A legend could include a supernatural element element but it always involves like a a, per, a human being as a, a main character of it yeah yeah uh king arthur's court and here's this weird mystical sword in the stone and mm-hmm. merlin you know what i mean but yeah so there's supernatural elements but it's about like this purported human being mm-hmm. whereas a myth could be uh you know include the goings on of the Egyptian gods of yeah, Osiris all, and Horus all, and Ra, you know, the, where there's not the a clear, yeah. you know what I mean? There's not yeah. a clear like person that they're pointing to. Yes. Even if in the legend, the person didn't really exist. Like we could wonder about, did King Arthur exist and the historical analog? Yeah. But that'd be the main distinction between those. Right. So when you say that a myth is designed to point out truth, uh, it's not necessarily historical truth. No, yeah, it could so be much as it is. theological, right. moral, psychological. Yeah. There's some deep um yeah, truth of the world that the myth is trying to capture in narrative story form. And so why is this on your mind? Why why are well, you been thinking about this? Well, because there it's an open question what how much myth is contained in the Christian faith. Uh-huh. Is there myth in the Bible, you mean? Yeah, I guess so. Well, should you think, should you think about the Bible or parts of the Bible as myth? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know for a fact, like that, some people would say yes, and there has been a whole school of 
hermeneutics or interpretive efforts called uh, demythologizing. Hmm. A demythologizing hermeneutic. So you're, it's assuming that there's myths in there, and you're trying to remove away the mythical elements to get at the nugget of theological, practical, moral truth embedded in the story. Why would you need to get a? Why would you need to do away with the mythological elements to get at the truth? Isn't the whole point of them being there to point you to this truth? Um, or rather, like. So in the interpretive project where you're, where you're trying to discern what are all and only the true propositions that I can infer from the story, okay. I am taking away the mythological elements to avoid making inferences that have supernatural consequences. So it's for someone that is I you know, deeply committed to the Enlightenment hyper-rationalist project you know, yep. scientific age. There's no room for supernatural. <laughs> Even though there might still be benefit to maybe the moral tr- truths or meanings of the story, the the project you're describing is trying to get at that without yeah. having to onboard a metaphysic of... Let's, do, let's take an example. Yes, please. Yep. In the Gospels, uh, a number of times you have Jesus feeding the multitude. Mm-hmm. 5,000, 3,000, usually from a small amount of food. Yeah. And the story, I think everyone's in agreement that the story says, or like the author is tr- was trying to communicate that a super, a miracle happened. Right. There was a few loaves and a few fish that were miraculously multiplied into bushels of whole mm-hmm. buckets of extras to feed this whole crowd of people. Okay. Yep. So how to interpret that? Well, a maybe a literalist or... Maybe a more classical traditional view would say, oh, that is a report of something that really happened. Like Jesus was a miracle worker and super, uh, supervened or interfered with the the laws of nature as they currently stand. Like you and I can't, I can't just go upstairs and multiply the home pride loaf. Right. right? So he right. somehow has power over that. And that really did happen. Okay. Yeah. The more rationalist, maybe more austere type of, interpretive project would be to say to to try to find a sequence of natural events that explain the story so got it so i there are i forget some of the names of the scholars but like in the 1800s biblical scholars might have said something like oh each person got a little crumb of the five loaves okay wow so that in that way they all got a little morsel Mm -hmm. and it was to foreshadow the Eucharist and how we all do that now with little crumbs of bread. Sure. Okay. So, okay. so see how it wasn't trying to like say the story didn't happen, but it yeah. was giving naturalistic. Would this be the same no, as, but now just real quick, yep. then the third thing, the demythologizing project is different. Oh, that's saying that's not trying to find like that naturalistic explanation. They think that's ridiculous. The yep. author meant to describe a miraculous event. However, the modern man cannot accept a supernatural uh, hypothesis to explain things. So uh, let's let's do away with that miraculous part of the story. And what what's like the real theological, mm. moral, important claim being made? Uh, what would it be in this case? Something like I don't know. I don't know. I don't God know. provides or share with your neighbor or I don't know. Yeah, great things can come from small 
packages. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So see how all those interp those are approaches to how you would interpret a passage and each have philosophical commitments. Yep. The latter two, notably, uh disallow supernatural hypotheses to help explain or interpret an event. Yeah, yeah. And so um I can see there being some benefit to I can see why you would want to engage in some demythologizing. Yes, um yeah. if something seems particularly far like far fetched, it's just tough to swallow. Man, that's really in the story. They're really saying that happened. A talking snake or a, a talking donkey or whatever it happens to be. Like there's some wild stories in scripture. Mm-hmm. And it man, it can be tough to suspend your disbelief sometimes. But at the same time, you, you have to acknowledge the author is really seeming to indicate that a miracle took place here. Mm-hmm. So the demythologizer recognizes that. Yeah. Uh, and just, but also recognizes we're in this new era. So here's the motivation for that view, not to, yeah. don't want to paint a straw man. Yeah. So they would say, look, Tony, you demythologize about everything else. Mm. In fact, that's because you are... Uh, a descendant in the era of the scientific revolution. Uh, the scientific method came about where we can test and test our claims and make hypotheses and yeah. find out what's not working or working for our scientific theories and look at all of the dead spiritual entities left in the wake of the scientific revolution Yeah, that have just not... Uh, they've not pulled their weight explanatorily, or mm-hmm. they're no longer necessary. One classic example is phlogiston. Sure. <laughs> phlogiston was a, a pre-modern uh, supposed spiritual substance in everything wow. that explained why something burned. If the it produced a larger flame, it had more phlogiston. If it burned less, it had not as much. And that's fine as far as it goes. Like it it did the work it needed to in the theory. Yeah. But now we found out about the oxygen molecule and combustion. And the modern theory of combustion uh, relegated phlogiston Doesn't to the graveyard phlogiston. of spiritual entities. Yeah. And there are a number of those. Even in, even within theology, we don't have to just stay in science. Before monotheism really took off. Yeah. The ancient mind populated their metaphysical world with a host of personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Greek pantheon of gods. So many. And How many? Do you know? No, no. I mean, just, it would be different depending on who you ask. Really? Okay. Uh, but yeah, just think back to the, if you've seen the Disney Hercules and, you know, yeah. there's Hermes and uh, Aphrodite, Zeus and Hera and all of them. And they've all got their little dramas playing out and going yeah. So those are like kind of demigods maybe and there's yeah. they're a weird kind of hybrid between a mortal and a god but over time it barring eastern traditions for a moment the western world has slowly demythologized as a whole our religions have become less populous mm-hmm. in terms of their spiritual entities our understanding of the natural world has become less spiritual right and so right now we currently, uh, at least it's advised by even some like well-thinking, godly scientists, yeah, would say no. It's good that we have 
a method for understanding the world that doesn't allow supernatural explanations. Well, this is what I wanted to ask is methodological should, naturalism. Yes. And well, and that shouldn't, shouldn't we adopt a naturalistic explanation where one is possible and likely? Like if we can come up with a, an explanation. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I should probably not jump to the conclusion that there's a ghost in my house when my ceiling creaks at night. I, there's probably some other explanation for whatever noise I'm hearing. It's likely wind or it's expansion from temperature and things are creaking. Mm-hmm. And it's good for me to look for a naturalistic explanation before I jump to the gods did it. The ghosts Why is did that? it. Uh, What's what motivates that axiom, that principle of interpretation? It's it's a good question. It seems it just seems more in line with reality. It seems like I could I could come up with all kinds of crazy explanations for anything that happens yeah. and be completely out of touch with reality. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how to answer it other than that. It just seems good to be in touch with reality. Is it called... I forget. I might be bombing this, so I apologize to my philosopher friends. I think it's something like the LGM theory of everything. Oh, I don't know. The little green men. Oh, okay. So little no little green men that are indetectable yep. are responsible for whatever. Yep. And you could do that for anything. Mm-hmm. And there is no actual independent reason to suppose that the world is like that at all. Right. So that is troublesome. Yep. That doesn't seem like for someone who values uh, one's beliefs to be truth apt, mm-hmm. to be directed at or aimed at the truth the way the world really is, to allow a supposition of a supernatural force without just cause. Yeah. And that's the real thing is when do you have just cause? Right. That's right. where the, the flashpoint is. So if we say that it's good where possible to adopt a naturalistic explanation what what is the cost to this demythologizing why why shouldn't we demythologize as much as possible and and even another good on top of this is look what look how much good was produced in the world right when we did make the shift into methodological naturalism Mm -hmm. and just by that term i mean when i engage in my scientific rationale i am disallowed from helping myself to a supernatural explanation yeah now this does not say that what this is not saying is never make a supernatural hypothesis Mm -hmm. this is saying when sorry i'm stuffy it's okay when you are doing science in the when you are engaging in the discipline of science use methodological naturalism yeah you can maybe we maybe we have a different rubric for when we do theology and philosophy and but at least within science that's how science is done. Yeah. 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 Totally. When we did away with phlogiston, we were able to figure things out like combustion engines. Yes. And so there's tons of good that's come from it. Yeah. Um, is there bad? Have we lost anything? Why not maxim like demythologize as much as you can in all areas? So let's say I, I've, um, I don't think we've lost a lot in the science, the realm of science. Mm hmm. What has happened, here's a cost to the scientific revolution, is the project of science has been replaced often in folks' minds by scientism. And that is the priority of science epistemologically above all other disciplines. That is, you are more justified in the conclusions of science than you are any other discipline. And 
And that itself is a philosophical claim. That's not scientific, right. ironically. Yeah. Uh, so that's been, and I view that view as false mm-hmm. scientism. And we should equally respect other disciplines like history or theology or philosophy and not make science primary. That's been a effect of the scientific revolution. Yep. Um, but in terms of our theology now, let's let's just shift yeah. there. That little excursus on science was just to showcase what we mean by demythologizing, mm-hmm. bringing that to the theology world. Well, there's a host of examples, like you mentioned, in the Bible that trade on supernatural causes. Mm-hmm. Balaam's talking donkey. Oh my gosh. I, well, I feel dumb even listing them. There's so many. There's heaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's heaps of stuff. There's seas parting and plagues and resurrections and healings and right. talking animals, the sun standing still. And so I guess the question you'd want to ask is what would be bad or what would be uh, costly in using the hermeneutic of demythologizing on any example in Mm -hmm. scripture or in a faith tradition Mm -hmm. so let's just rifle through some examples i mean the loaves and the fish one uh great things come out of small gifts or something or uh, even like something like the resurrection uh this is just a playing out of the the deep archetype of humanity of um death and resurrection and dying to an old self and a new self we, uh-huh. we see that playing out in the human story in our own lives like the hero's journey yeah. this is just this is just the hero's journey yeah there, this didn't actually happen or you know yeah that would be like the strategy of what they're talking about um jesus walking on water again the rationalists would say oh when that happened he just was walking on a sandbar and it looked like he was on water yeah and that's why they wrote it no that's not what the author meant like mm-hmm. The disciples thought he was walking on water and the demythologizer says something like, oh, they wanted to communicate that uh, God it just has authority or sovereignty over the cosmos or yeah. something. So what is, so what's the cost of taking that approach? Yeah, because the cost, the cost would be uh, you might miss out on something that really did happen. That was supernatural. When you buy fiat, Mm-hmm. or just by declaration say we're not going to allow any supernatural explanation then if that were the case you'd miss it because mm-hmm. you're not allowed to use it in your investigation are there examples you can think of that aren't easily demythologized or like examples say in scripture where a supernatural explanation really does seem to be the best one yeah man the the biggest one for me is probably the resurrection. Sure. That's a big one. Of Jesus. It's one of the bigger ones in the Bible. Yeah. 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 Uh, Probably next to that, I don't know if it holds the same weight or it's pretty close, but just the idea of creation. Sure. Yeah. Um, I still find myself convinced that that needs to be a supernatural event in some way, just almost by definition. Uh Unless you... It's always existed or it's popped into existence from the multiverse or something wild. But Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, because, but, yeah, like a <clears throat> to demythologize the resurrection, you, I mean, you would be saying that the writers want, wanted to convey the idea of Jesus coming back to life, but you don't need to be committed that that actually happened historically mm-hmm. at all. And, and just to be clear, too, like, uh, 
yeah, if they're building that in, like you don't, we, if the demythologizer is at the same time saying you cannot think that this historically mm. happened, now there's more of a problem. But but just the idea, like what I said earlier of this is the human archetype of the hero's journey playing out. Mm -hmm. That's fine to say. Yeah. The question is like, in addition, did it really happen? Did it actually happen though? Uh, and I think it's a mistake for the hardlined demythologizer to rule that out at the outset. Sure. Just because of other reasons. Yeah. So, yeah, I find the resurrection details recalcitrant. They are resistant to undermining. Yeah. I mean, this alternative was of explanations of this story that has been propagated are weak. In Can my we opinion, walk through some because this was one of the uh, one of the main wings in my sort of polemic uh, defensive Christianity that I had sort of up my sleeve with natural yeah, theology yeah. and arguments and stuff. Resurrection. If you was were very the essential. Iron Man suit, this was one of the main weapons totally. on your arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> or when people, especially to answer the question, okay, maybe Kalam cosmological argument, maybe that gets you God vaguely. Sure. Why Christianity? Yep. You know, and you it's like, that. well, let's look at the resurrection of Jesus. Um, so yeah, can we walk through some of the alternate theories of what went on there? Sure. And I know in the literature, they all have like proper names and stuff for mm -hmm. this theory, but we can just kind of speak of it sure. casually. So I guess the hidden body theory would be one. So again, just the, we're jumping the gun. Uh, the story of the resurrection. Well, that I think Craig does it this way. If I may yeah, channel please. my inner Craig. Yeah. Yeah. That's five facts. Historically agreed upon facts oh, great. that okay. need explaining. They okay. demand explaining. I'll see if I can rattle them th off. Uh, Jesus was crucified uh, publicly. Uh, he was he died and was buried, or appeared dead and was buried in a tomb. Um, three days later, the tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. The disciples then and others claimed to have appearances of seeing Jesus alive. And that the disciples all were martyred for that belief and defending that belief. Hmm. So those five things need wow. explaining. Well done. And yeah, I think that's right. Correct me if I'm wrong, any fellow Craigian acolytes, but yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Um, and so then we're left with, okay, well, how can we explain those five things? What and possible that, explanations and are his, there? And his whole shtick is each of the alternatives don't do a great job of one of, of those. One five. of those, yeah. There's a weak spot somewhere in each so of let's the series. So, um, the hidden body theory. So, like, is that like a stolen body theory? Yeah. the The disciples, I guess, ransacked the tomb, right? So, and took the body, and they. You don't have any report of that from the guards, so I don't. I mean, the the tomb was guarded, so if the disciples somehow overpowered two Roman guards and stole the body, mm -hmm. it also doesn't explain why they went to their deaths defending what they knew to be a lie. You know, if they were being martyred for their claims that Jesus had risen from the dead mm -hmm. and was Lord, and they knew, actually, we just stashed his body in a back alley somewhere, it's unlikely that they would all stay committed to that upon pain of death, but they did. Right, right. So the origin of the disciples' faith. That's yeah, what and at it. least, well, and just to be fair, I think some of the stories of the di disciples are fairly legendary. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, so, I think Peter... Like the crucified upside down thing, I think that I think that's the one that we know the most more about than right. like Thomas being mm -hmm. flayed in India or something. <laughs> right. There's just less. I mean, how do they? Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so there was uh, apparent death theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, 
but instead like in the tomb resuscitated and sort of crawled his way out Mm -hmm. i guess and somehow moved the stone and got past the guards or whatever i think the main sort of critique there is a bloodied and and weak jesus is hardly the image of the messiah that would in you know garner the conclusion oh he rose from the dead as opposed to like oh he's he's just barely hanging on to life you know after he's been flayed and hung on a cross for mm-hmm. however long um, yeah and then and then what's the story there so he and so in that story he would then go into hiding after the like the story of the ascension and was never seen from again yeah i guess became a hermit yeah and uh disappeared hallucination theory that he didn't it doesn't explain the empty tomb really um it's just an attempt to explain the appearances yeah that they were so traumatized by what happened to jesus and and obviously huge jesus fans that they had psychotic episodes and thought Mm -hmm. they saw jesus uh you know but that just leaves some of these other things unexplained and so and if i'm being totally honest like as you're rattling these off i don't find that any of those theories are like Oh, that that absolutely couldn't be the alternative. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe one of them is, and it's just unlikely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happens all the time in history. That the unlikely explanation is, in fact, the right one. I mean, uh-huh. that can be the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, that happened. Think of how often that happens with, uh, like court cases that get overturned decades later. Like someone got sentenced to death row, and then upon learning about dna and they went back and looked at the old cases and did dna forensic evidence yeah. like oh, oh he shoot. was innocent but like at the time yeah. like the most likely situation was that he did it um that guy that was sentenced and then evidence came in to the contrary that was unlikely but uh. so i think the the atheist's claim there would be that any naturalistic explanation is more likely than a supernatural explanation Mm -hmm. so even the most unlikely natural explanation or naturalist explanation should be the one you adopt it's more likely than the supernatural one yeah interesting what do you what do you make of that i mean that's a so that's a philosophical claim about yeah this well epistemology yeah this is where craig goes into background information and context like he has independent reasons for thinking that there is a god who would have interest in raising jesus from the dead you sort of bring that to the table of the story of resurrection. Mm-hmm. So if you're excluding supernatural events outright, that's a position that you bring to that. It's not an explanation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that in itself is a conclusion that needs defending. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the cost of demythologizing the resurrection is that, well, yeah, what if that actually happened and you've ruled that out? Mm-hmm. Now we've picked an example that has it seems like it has very great import on the Christian faith yeah. and theology. So even in the previous episode, talking about the concept of God as rescuer from the human predicament of death, even if you take that concept, at least for me, like when I utilize that, that's doing a lot of the resurrection is playing a large role in in your hope there. Yeah, and the yeah. candidate of Jesus as this God as rescuer. Right. Um, I appreciate. The fact that he's an individual that appears to have conquered death conquered it. <laughs> and not merely m- mythologically played out the role of the hero. Yeah. It matters that it really happened and that an if individual... If you want it to really happen. Right. Or anything like it. Yes. Yeah. That matters to me a lot. Yes. Now, something like 
the story of Jonah mm-hmm. of being swallowed by a fish and uh, taken down to the depths of chaos in the ocean. Okay, now yeah. we're this is less central to. I don't. I don't need that. Or I, it's. I don't want to say need. That was the wrong word. Okay. I want to have said. Uh, it is not of vital importance that that have historically occurred. In fact, that whether it historically occurred or not doesn't make one lick of difference to me in the importance of the message that it's the story of Jonah is carrying. Or in your, or in the existential problem you're seeking to solve as a religious inquirer, like yeah. not much hangs on the mm-hmm. historicity of Jonah's being tossed overboard on a ship. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that it's impossible for us to find out at this point through natural means that that occurred. I don't know what we, I don't know know how we would. And I don't know, uh, I guess what would be gained if it were discovered is that, oh, this scriptural story is corroborated by a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. But the details of the story would be the things that were corroborated what can't be corroborated and what is actually important in my opinion are, is the theological message yeah the message of the story is and and again like i don't know something like god has forgiveness for everyone even the wicked assyrians right you know yeah yeah interesting so so it just depends some in some cases you stand to lose quite a bit by demythologizing mm-hmm. in other cases not so much i think that's right and we need to we should not take a policy of one one size fits all Mm. when it comes to this so i disagree with the demythologizer that disallows supernatural explanation and i disagree with the face value traditionalists that it has to have historically happened exactly like it said yeah you know the both different approaches and tools i'm fine with an author having helped himself to mythological supernatural elements to tell a story yeah what i'm more interested in is yeah i guess it does come back to that from that existential perspective of the inquirer who wants to know what the world is really like and be rescued from Mm -hmm. their predicament uh does this matter to that extent yeah and if it doesn't or or maybe even in the the web of beliefs of one's worldview um if it's a peripheral strand then I just some maybe I'm ambivalent or I'm agnostic on the question of historicity mm-hmm. and I'm interested in what the mythologizer has to say. But if it's a central node like a resurrection, um, and maybe there's other ones you'd want to throw in there, creation event, right. then I'm far more dubious of, oh, just demythologize it. Right. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Is that helpful? I mean That's I good. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as when you go to approach the scripture and you're like oh what a wild wacky story what do i do i mean maybe you feel embarrassed yeah that your faith tradition endorses this is in there a book that says that (laughs) yeah yeah and here are these schools of thought and it's not crazy for you to look for those higher order theological moral principles embedded in the story Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be committed to like this historically happened nor do you have to be committed that it didn't happen right. in some cases. And it's up Sometimes to it's us. Sometimes besides the point, actually. It's yeah. up to us in community to discern where those different cases lie on that spectrum. Yeah. 
That's good. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Open to Truth. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. We'd love to hear from you if you have we would any questions on like which particular how 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 would you handle a particular biblical story? We've been kind of toying with the idea of going through tough Bible stories. Yeah. So which ones are is the one that's stumping screaming you? out to you? You just can't quite swallow that that wild thing happened. Yeah, yeah. Or have you come to see a story? Maybe you have a great naturalistic explanation for a story, some Bible thing that's in there that would be really interesting to us hmm. to hear. I'd love to know that yeah. as well. You can write in at mailbag at opentotruth.com. Uh, we also write about these ideas each week on the blog. That's, right. that's a great way to share this with a friend because not everyone's going to just automatically listen to a half hour, hour long podcast, but yeah. they might read a three minute blog. Yeah. So I'd really appreciate it. If you enjoy this content, subscribe to the blog you can do that open to slash subscribe and uh see if you find it valuable first and if you do then take that next step and share it with a friend perfect we'd love that well thanks for listening thanks for watching guys uh we'll see you next time stay curious